This episode of the Best Seats Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. To learn how you can support the show, go to thebestseats.com slash Patreon. Once there, you'll learn how you can get early access to shows, ad-free listening, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, and more. Once again, that's thebestseats.com slash Patreon. But enough of that. On to the show. Welcome to the first ever episode 33 of the Best Seats Podcast, the only podcast bringing you interviews with some of the most talented folks from the Southern California hospitality industry and beyond each and every episode. I'm your host, Croft McCarthy, founder of The Best Seats. Thank you, as always, to Allie Coyle for providing music for the show. You can find more of her work at AllieCoyleMusic.com. And as a reminder, if you enjoy the show, please be sure to leave a nice little rating and review wherever you're listening to it. It helps other folks discover the show. And you can head to thebestseats.com for more. And don't forget exclusive content over at patreon.com slash thebestseats. Super excited for episode 33. I know the show took a little bit of a break for about a week or so. Um, I had a birthday in October and I elected to take a couple of days off, step away a little bit. Was a little kind of overworked with some things going on. Um, Luckily was able to get some celebration time in before the fires down here in Orange County, which thankfully everybody I know and kind of in the area was safe. The irony, of course, talking about those fires is episode 33 is a little bit related to the fires that kind of ravaged Northern California a little bit, but mostly related to wine in that I have a very, very special and talented guest, executive chef up at the restaurant at Justin Wine, Rachel Hagstrom. She has cut her teeth at some of the best restaurants down here in Southern California. She's done stage up at the French Laundry. She is immensely, immensely talented. And she's somebody that I have been fascinated with her work. I was lucky enough to meet her in person right before COVID shut everything down up at the Table for 10 event down in Dana Point, California. Um, I think she is extremely, extremely, extremely good at what she does. And I'm very glad that she took the time to come on the show. Uh, This is a uh, telephone interview show. We were not able to do this one in person. She's up in Paso Robles. I'm down here. That's a bit of a drive. And it was just better, I think, to do this one over the phone. So again, not an in-person one. I know some people were really commenting how much they enjoyed those. I enjoyed them too, obviously out of respect for everybody's social distancing, the fact that it's still a global pandemic, regardless of where you lie on that as far as the severity of this thing. Um, I'm choosing to be safe and obviously at the whim and discretion of the guests as well. And Paso Robles is a little bit far for a 45-minute interview. So it made more sense to do it over the phone. But I'm super fascinated by Rachel's story. Um, This is definitely more of a somber interview. Uh, This has taken a toll on a lot of people. And by it, I obviously mean COVID. Restaurants are closing left, right, and center. We recorded this a little bit earlier in October when I'm doing this uh, intro kind of outro for you right now. You know, we're getting word that Pock Pock has just closed up in Portland. Obviously, there's been more closures, you know, all over New York. Um, Very important restaurants are definitely taking a hit. And, you know, Chef Hagstrom was nice enough to be candid about how difficult this has been. You know, obviously, Paso Robles is not Chicago. It's not Los Angeles. It's not, you know, Orlando. It's a small wine town up in Central California. It's a place that you should go, especially if you're looking for a little bit of escapism, check it out. But it's a town that still is feeling the repercussions of this just like anywhere else. So we talk on a bunch of different topics. Um, I was super, super grateful for the time on this, for her to set aside 
you know, a lot of people are very funny. They kind of say that they haven't done a lot of podcasts before. They're a little uncomfortable when they kind of first get going. And then it just basically turns into an honest conversation. And they kind of forget that I'm recording. So we definitely hit on some heavy topics in this one. Uh, but it's very, very, very well worth listening because like I said, she is super talented. If you are out here, whether you're Central Coast, Southern Coast, Northern California, um, even somewhere like Oregon or Nevada, because I know we have a couple of listeners from all over, take some time. Paso Robles is somewhere that should be on your radar. Luckily, they've been spared by a lot of the fires. They did have some smoke issues, uh, but they were spared unlike some other places and wineries. Justin Wine, obviously, if you're a wine fan at all, you know that name. You probably have a bottle in your wine fridge right now. They're very good at what they do, and they've been doing it for a long time, and they're good at it for a reason. They are consistent. They're wonderful. The restaurant that Chef runs is fantastic, and you owe it to yourself to check it out. But that's enough chatting out of me. You didn't come here for me. You came for the guest. So let's jump right into it with episode 33 of the Best Seats Podcast, executive chef at the restaurant at Justin Wine, Rachel Hackstrom. This is Rachel. Chef, how are you? It's Crawford. Hey, what's going on? Not too much. How are things? Uh, pretty good. Awesome. Thank you so much. Came for home so I could be at home and relax and the podcast <laughs> as opposed to at work and maybe not have service. <laughs> well, I'm grateful for you for setting aside the time to chat. Um, obviously, you are probably like so many other people, no doubt, very, very busy, but um, I've been really looking forward to kind of sitting down and hearing how things are going up at the winery um, with you personally and just kind of connecting and kind of being able to share your story. So thank you for setting the uh, setting aside the time tonight. Absolutely. Uh, Glad you were interested. Extremely. Yeah. And I've, I've got a ton of questions and topics lined up, so hopefully we'll, we'll make our way through them. Uh, Chef, for people that may not be familiar with you or your background, would you mind introducing yourself and kind of giving a little bit of your personal history? Um, yeah, so I grew up in California, Southern California specifically. My family was from Orange County, and in the early 80s, we moved out to Temecula, and I grew up on 10 acres of orchard, which is kind of where I learned to have an appreciation for food and plants of all different kinds, and um, eventually made my way to culinary school in San Francisco, where I lived and cooked in the city and in Napa for about a 10-year period. I worked um, at the French Laundry. I worked at Post Rio. I worked at the, the Ritz-Carlton for the dining room under Ron Siegel when he was there. And um, eventually I moved to Sweden for a few years before returning back to California. When I came back to California, I found myself back in hotels and I worked at the St. Regis in Orange County and then made my way to Balboa Bay Resort where I worked as chef de cuisine and opened the, the what, what was then new restaurants, A&O and Waterline, and then eventually took over as executive chef. When I was there, I was lucky enough to be a part of the wine, wine dinner series. And it was there that I met Justin Baldwin and we did the Justin wine series or the wine dinner. And I, um, Eventually, they had an opening as an executive chef, and it was sort of a dream job for me. So here I am at Paso Robles, and that's what I'm doing now. Before we jump in to all of kind of the culinary endeavors and what you've been doing up in Paso, I, what, I, I want to back all the way up to one thing that you mentioned, Sweden. 
what brought you there? Kind of how did you find yourself going there? And what was that experience like for you kind of as it relates to your culinary background? Yeah, so great question. Um, growing up in Temecula, I mentioned having a lot of plants growing up on an orchard and that sense of space. So there was always a high quality, high quality of ingredients, right? We were growing so much and it was, things were just really, really beautiful. But I had always longed to be in an environment where I could cook and have a restaurant with the same quality of ingredients. As well as at one point when I was living in the Bay Area, we went on a restaurant kind of field trip and we went to a winery that had a chef and they cooked us a beautiful meal and we tasted through the wines. And I remember thinking that, you know, this is what I want to do someday. This is kind of like the ultimate chefing job experience. And um, when I saw the opportunity arise in Paso, it just, you know, all things seemed to align. Was your time over in Sweden kind of beneficial for any kind of the product? I mean, obviously places like the French Laundry and, and you know, stages like that and stints at different restaurants are going to give you unbelievable access to, you know, not just kind of technique, but that kind of furthered education. Did your time in Europe play into any of this at all? I think so, because I there was an aspect to different ingredients. I've always worked in California restaurants and they've always been seasonally based. So we're working with products that are primarily focused around what we have access to in California. When I was living and working in Sweden, you had access to fruits and some vegetables and a lot of proteins that were very different from here. And the way that they eat in Sweden is very different. So a lot of fish, a lot of cream, and a lot of berries that grow around the colder temperatures. So it was kind of fun for me to come back and see how I could take some of those flavors and incorporate them here. Being up at, not just being at a winery, but being at someplace like Justin, I mean, there's very few wineries that I can think of that I think are more kind of synonymous, where if you were to ask, you know, even just your kind of average wine fan. I won't even say connoisseur, but just someone who wants to go out and kind of grab a nice bottle. Justin is probably going to be at the tip of most people's tongues. What's the experience been like before we kind of jump into obviously what the past seven months or so has been like, what's the experience been like for you transitioning from that kind of waterline, you know, hotel based major restaurant like that up to a winery? You know, the benefit of coming from hotels and having all of the multiple outlets and in-room dining and all those various sources you had to deal with. We still have a little bit of that just on a smaller scale at the winery because we have an inn with a few bedrooms. We have a restaurant that does lunch and we have a restaurant that's very different that does dinner. So it helped me transition into that specific winery and be able to do that. Um, but what's fun and what's great is that since it is on a smaller scale, you get back in the kitchen and you can really have a lot of a lot more fun than as opposed to being the executive chef at a hotel or resort where things are much more on a macro management level. Does it feel more at times like a restaurant, even on kind of the larger scale, or does it kind of lend itself more towards that resort? You mentioned that you have the inn and obviously you're taking, talking different meals, whether it's kind of lunch, dinner, or some of those more intimate experiences. 
does it ever feel some ways like it kind of teeter totters one direction or the other, or does it kind of stand on its own for you as just this complete separate entity? You know, you know, as we get into COVID, I guess we'll touch on it more, but the, the restaurant has transitioned a little bit after we reopened for COVID. So right now it seems more like everybody coming to Justin during the day is part of a giant restaurant, which is great for me because I feel like my footprint expanded. But at dinner, it's still a small, more intimate experience. So I feel like I get the best of both worlds. So you mentioned reopening, um, and and I want to talk about kind of what your life has been like as a chef the past couple months. But where does the where does Justin stand right now? What's the state of the restaurant? What's the current? I associate we're recording this what October twentieth right now, um, depending on what time people who are listening are listening to this too. Current regulations kind of out here in California, outdoor dining, limited indoor capacity, et cetera. What is the current state of affairs up at Justin? Well, we're lucky a couple of weeks ago, we were allowed to open for 25% occupancy. With that being said, the majority of our um, tasting and dining experience during the day is outside. So we have a lot of expansive patios, which we're really lucky that we were able to still have guests socially distanced. Our staff wear masks, gloves, you know, they love wearing the gloves because they have to change them, you know, a million times a day. So when their hands get sweaty, <laughs> they get really frustrated. But it, it, that's kind of life right now with COVID. Yeah, I should say for anybody who's listening who's not directly involved in hospitality, if you really want to get a whole new level of sympathy, try changing those gloves eight or nine times with sweaty hands and, and you're going to have a whole new appreciation of patience for people. Uh, chef, when this was yeah. all kind of breaking out, you know, very early March, what was life like for you, you know, kind of A, during the shutdown and then since some of the kind of reopening periods up in Paso Robles? Well, in March, we were gearing up for having a great month, even a great year financially. We were just knocking it out of the park um, with the number of guests, with, you know, our revenue and our guest satisfaction was there. Everything was just, you know, on a great trajectory. And all of a sudden, that week, I had three banquets that weekend, which is a lot for our tiny little kitchen. I only have a few employees, cooks back there. Mm-hmm. And the banquet started canceling. And I had all this inventory. And here, out at the winery, we're so far away, we only get orders once a week. So my orders had already been dropped or were being delivered. And the banquet started falling off. And I had so much inventory by Friday, all events were over. And I think by Saturday, we knew that we weren't going to be open again on Monday. And we didn't know it for how long. So there was a lot of food in the walk-in to try and salvage and figure out what to do with. And to be perfectly honest, I thought that it was only going to be a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, obviously that didn't turn out to be the case. When you weren't in the kitchen, what was home life for you like? Was it hard to kind of go from that, you know, kind of that ever, ever going grind that so many chefs kind of feel like they're always on to switching it off a little bit? I mean, obviously not entirely. You have to figure out what to do with the walk and you have to figure out what business looks like. But what was it like for you to kind of have to switch off a little bit? Um, I think for me, I was really, really lucky in the world of chefs because I continued to be employed the entire time. So what had happened is we have a tasting room at at our winery and we have a tasting room downtown. 
And as we started to keep, Justin actually continued to employ and pay their staff for a long time, but for the safety of everyone, kept them at home until they figured out what to do. Um, I continued to go to work and I was cooking to feed the production team. So the production team at the wineries didn't have to go leave the premise for their lunch break. So we were sending food to them kind of in a cafeteria style way up to the different production facilities. And I learned to sell wine. I learned to make in reservations, all kinds of reservations. So I learned to wear a lot of hats during that time. With that being said, I started to work more normal hours and I started to see my daughter for dinner time or bedtime on a weekly basis, which was something that they were, it was kind of a foreign thing. So now that I'm getting back into an almost normal routine, she's kind of wanting to see me more because for those six months of COVID or while it was slow, those few months, she, you know, she learned to adapt. Mm-hmm. Did you also have to play teacher or anything like that for your daughter? Luckily, my husband was taking over that role. <laughs> he, um, he, he, mo- he drives Uber for the most part, and unfortunately, that took a hit during the time as well. So he was playing the school role, and on the few days where I did work from home, I worked in the bedroom, and she worked in the living room, and then we would have lunch break together. That's great that you were able to be kept on um, the whole time and that Justin was able to keep so many staff on. Kind of having that insulation, I think, is such a rarity for so many people in the hospitality industry right now. Um, and to kind of be able to yeah, have that cushion, I think, has been a rarity even before COVID. So for to be able to have... They're very that, rare. Yeah, completely. And very much appreciated. And we were lucky as we started to find new sources of revenue through virtual tasting. Um, we had a curbside pickup for wine downtown, so we we learned to wear a lot of different hats and you know adapt as a lot of restaurants had to. Uh, you mentioned you're starting to shift back into the kitchen, and obviously with things kind of reopening at least to some extent, all that time that you were kind of cooking for the production teams and like you mentioned, kind of the cafeteria style and all the different hats you had to wear to adapt because I refuse to use the word pivot, which has become the unofficial word of 2020, but so many people had to adapt and do what they did. What changes has that had on you as a chef now that you're back kind of running the line? Um, well, now I know all the front of the house system. So, you know, when the front of the house has questions, concerns, or gripes, it's easier to, a, answer their question or resolve it without getting a front of the house manager if they need something inputted into a system or they're not sure how to ring in a ticket because now I know how to do all that stuff pretty well. Um, as well as, you know, I think it makes you more understanding for what the front of the house people go through when they're dealing with customers. Luckily, I had dealt with some servers in front of the house managers that, you know, you they forced me to appreciate and understand guest requests before coming to Justin, but having interacting with the guests directly, it makes you more understanding in the kitchen, I think. From the cooking standpoint, obviously when people are coming to Justin, they're coming obviously for Justin. It's a big part of it. It's obviously why you want to go there to understand the production, the history of it, uh, to taste the wines. God knows it's probably my favorite part of going to any winery is when you, after the learning is over, you finally get the taste. 
From the cooking standpoint, what's it like for you balancing, because I'm assuming that there's obviously a lot of wine pairings, what's it like from the balancing standpoint of not overshadowing the wines, but also being able to kind of highlight the differences in them for the guests that come? You know, I think for me, I'm really lucky with Justin because we have a huge portfolio of wine. Some wineries have a smaller portfolio and you're more limited. At Justin, they've got quite a few wines. So at lunch, I'm not quite as limited. Plus, lunch doesn't strictly revolve around pairing. Yeah. At dinner, I'm a little more limited because we do a we do a wine pairing menu. And so Justin, of course, is predominantly all red wines. Therefore, I don't cook with as much fish or as I may have as maybe before because, you know, it's geared toward a red wine based menu. So, and we always do two wine pairings, a standard and a premium. So most white wines go into that first course and the rest are red. So that's kind of the biggest limitation with the wine. Aside from that, we're pretty lucky that we have such a portfolio it's quite so large and diverse. Of course, most people might not know that unless they come to the winery because a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, but a decent amount of our wines are only sold at the winery. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helps broaden my pairing menus. What was it? You mentioned that you kind of became more accustomed to different aspects, including you mentioned selling wine. What was that like for you? Because a lot of people that I've talked to in the spirits side of things or the wine side of things, they were busier than all hell during these times. You know, granted, a lot of their kind of customers changed. They weren't doing as much on premises stuff, but between kind of just people were buying wine like crazy, especially during that initial shutdown. You couldn't find toilet paper. You couldn't find wine. It was the great kind of, you know, get the essentials of 2020. Um, has this yeah. kind of has the time down been able to kind of further your comprehension and not appreciation, but kind of your relationship with the wines that are produced up there? Actually, yeah, it really did because Justin started doing virtual tastings not only with internally where you can book with a sommelier to do a private virtual tasting at home, but they also launched some virtual tastings with Justin Baldwin that would go on Instagram live where people from anywhere could log on and watch. So with all the virtual tastings, there were recipe pairings um, and menus suggestions. And I had to come up with different wine pairings and different recipes for every single one. So as I was going through that, it really forced me to take a deeper look and a more closer look at, um, at the wine. And, you know, these wines were being picked by marketing or they were being picked by customers and all kinds of people as opposed to those of us in the restaurant. Or So it really caused me to pleasantly learn about some other wines that I hadn't even tasted yet at Justin. Writing recipes for tasting events and things like that, all of a sudden you kind of find yourself in the shoes of a cookbook author. What was that experience like for you? Did you find yourself kind of with some of the initial recipes being like, ooh, that might be a little too difficult. Maybe not everybody has a sous vide or did they come to you pretty naturally? Yeah, no, that was definitely a huge kind of learning curve between myself and marketing when they would ask me for recipes and I would say, well, what exactly are these recipe pairings for? You know, give me more specifics so that I know exactly what 
how to gear my recipe so that it's not, you know, a sous vide octopus. It's, you know, <laughs> something more. You can't make a torsion of foie gras? No, make a torsion. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, after after a couple, we I definitely got into the groove. And, you know, I think also what helped is on one of the virtual tastings, I did it myself at home. And I cooked the recipes through and um, and realized what would make it easier or harder for the home cook to kind of organize and orchestrate their recipes and timing. So, yeah, it, there was definitely some trial and error. And uh, most chefs don't want to sit down at the computer and write down recipes. It's the bane of their existence. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's still a struggle for me to this day. Is it something that you, it seems like for better or for worse, uh, we're obviously not sure kind of what the future holds at the time of this recording. It would be fantastic if October 21st, it just evaporated and we were kind of all clear, but digital tastings, things like that don't seem to be going away anytime soon from the people I've spoken to, whether they're chefs or again, like I said, liquor industry, people like that. Do you think that this is something that's obviously going to keep going? And even though you don't want to be kind of sitting down and writing, has it kind of helped with any sort of creative aspect going back to the restaurant menu and menu planning from that aspect at all? You know, we have a chocolate program at Justin with our pastry chef, and she does mm-hmm. homemade, painted, hand-painted everything, um, little bonbons. And we pair them with our wines. And one of them is actually made with our wine. So we're hoping to get to a place where when somebody does a virtual wine tasting, we can send them a box of chocolates to go to pair with their wines. So on a culinary aspect, that's one of our hopes that will get rolled out. You know, we're hoping in a few months. Granted, that's the pastry chef, and I'm just helping on a supervisory level. I mm-hmm. can't make chocolates for that. But um, that would be one of our big takeaways, and I definitely don't think that virtual tastings are going to slow down because it's an opportunity for people that live outside of the region to enjoy the wines or for the distilleries. People can sit in New York and you know virtually log in with somebody and enjoy the wines that we're offering as opposed to planning an expensive trip all the way to the West coast. So I think it's, I think it'll continue. And I've noticed that people are buying these also for, they're buying them for client gifts. They're buying them for networking things. They're buying them for birthday presents and other gifts. Um, and I think it'll just be something, it'll be an industry that grows. Have there been any aspects of whether it was kind of from the shutdown or these past couple months of kind of slowly getting back into not normalcy, but at least getting back into what feels kind of like a normal service. Have there been any things that have kind of happened that have benefited you as a chef that maybe you didn't realize initially, whether it was kind of, you know, dinner with your daughter or things like that? Are there any things that you've kind of taken back with you since reopening a little bit that you've noticed have kind of changed the way you operate as a chef compared to earlier? Aside from things like you mentioned, kind of the front of the house relationships or at least the system understandings. Has there been anything that's kind of gone into your food that's changed a little bit? You know, I suppose in recipe development or menu development, it has because Oftentimes, I've always looked at it from 
a perspective of what I'm finding at the market or inspiration that I'm getting from other chefs. And since I have had the opportunity to spend more time at home with my daughter, I'm cooking food that's geared towards our home cooking and geared towards her. Granted, she's got a palate probably beyond most adults, but I do find that what I'm doing for her has inspired a couple of menu items at work. With, I want to talk about a different aspect of the restaurant, um, which is kind of the customer interaction. There were articles written early on when restaurants first started to reopen from a couple of journalists. Um, I don't want to quote directly because I don't remember, but I want to say the LA Times put a piece out talking about their experience. They basically did a road trip um, up through to Napa and then back down through some of kind of where you're at in Paso. And they talked about the way that people kind of approached uh, masks and distancing and that there was a different level of politeness with regards to the kind of the areas where the wineries are versus when this respected author kind of got back to Los Angeles, Orange County, kind of the San Diego area. What's the experience been like with you with the dining public who's come in? Because I know people from the various areas from Los Angeles, Orange County, San Francisco that have gone down to the or up to the wineries, et cetera. And it seems like most people are kind of being respectful about it. But because so many people you know, unless they're kind of Paso locals are coming to you from out of town. What's your experience been like with the dining public? You know, overall, it's been really positive. And, you know, I mentioned spending a time, probably about a month where I was the front of the house employee working with guests. And I had one interaction that I remember where somebody refused to wear a mask. But out of hundreds and hundreds of people over the course of a month, or maybe there was a second one that I don't remember, I would feel like that those are pretty good odds. Um, since reopening the restaurant, lunch and dinner, and I've gone to talk to some of the dinner, dinner guests, and it's true, a lot of our guests are coming from San Jose or the Bay Area, and they're also coming from L.A. and Orange County. Mm-hmm. A lot of our guests are literally saying, thank you for being open this is the first time we have been out in a long time. And so there's a lot of appreciation for us being open, taking the necessary steps so that they feel safe. We've had quite a few guests that are coming from the metropolitan areas in Northern and Southern California. And they're, they're staying in long-term BNBs in central coast. And then they come and have dinner with us multiple times within a course of a week. So, that's exciting too because that's a new kind of customer that we're not used to seeing. Yeah. Somebody that dines a couple times out of the week. And and it's because they, they're trusting what we're doing on the COVID level and health and safety. But obviously there's a level of appreciation for what we're doing on the culinary side and I mean I it it's a huge compliment and very much appreciated on both ends. Do you feel like you personally as a chef are getting more kind of exposure to people that maybe normally before they would say, man, we had a great dinner at, you know, Justin winery, but now they may be saying, man, the chef at Justin winery, do you feel like you might be getting a little bit more of kind of the limelight as opposed to the name? And not that there's anything against the name, obviously Justin is what it is for a reason, but do you feel like you've kind of been able to expand your vision a little bit? Possibly, um, but I think more because I've only been there for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. So people are coming back and experiencing it again for the first time in a long time. 
or perhaps for the first time ever. I think there's a lot of people, and I was one of those people before I took this job. When I went wine tasting, I always went wine tasting in Northern California. Mm-hmm. And I think that Paso is sort of this undiscovered or secret, depending on which person you are. And so as people are starting to discover Paso, people are discovering Justin in the restaurant for the first time as well, which is great for us because I would love to for people to know about the restaurant and the culinary aspect, Justin, and not just the wine. Because um, they do go hand in hand. And it has, the restaurant, Justin, has been a little bit of a secret. So as people are starting to travel more to the Central Coast, I think that, yes, there is definitely been a benefit and more exposure. You talked about Northern California, um, which obviously has just been kind of ravaged by fires. It seems like this year, especially even worse. Um, And on the culinary side, it's one thing for the wineries to take a hit and not to diminish that. But the culinary side took has taken hits as well, especially with the loss of the restaurant Meadowood. Um, Being in wine country, kind of with everything going on, even the central wine country, What's it like having that potential kind of in the back of your mind? Is it just something that you have to be aware of or do you just try not to think about it? I mean, obviously it's kind of one of those things where fires are seasonal and that's horrifying that we have to say that they're seasonal, but they are at this point, kind of for lack of a better term. Being at a winery and potentially being exposed to something like that, how do you kind of handle that as a chef? Well, I mean, first and foremost, it's obviously heartbreaking and you know, every hospital, every business, especially hospitality, has just had such a hit this year with yeah. all of the plethora of issues that have gone on. Um, and, you, you know, NorCal was hit extremely hard, but we did have a lot of smoke here in Paso that came from the Salinas fires and those fires in Monterey. Mm-hmm. So it affected us. Luckily, we weren't affected quite as much, but we did have some closures and we did have a lot of close calls because of the, the the smoke levels. It wasn't healthy for employees and it wasn't healthy for the guests. So it was unfortunate because in hospitality we had to close completely because with COVID you couldn't have guests inside the building, but with yeah. the fires and you the smoke have you could have guests outside. So we had no option but to just close our doors. And this came after the COVID where we had just rehired all of these employees and nobody wants to go back to their staff and tell them that they're not going to have hours or, you know, God forbid, worse. So, yes, the fires definitely have taken its toll. Luckily, not much on us in Central Coast, but we adjusted our budgets and our plans for next year as well in the event that there's going to be closures next summer. We certainly hope that there won't, but you never know. I want to get your opinion on something else that's kind of an aspect that so many chefs, um, I would say, especially kind of elevated dining platforms like your own up with Justin, not have to deal with. It's not the right way to describe it, but it's something I've kind of been seeing from a lot of acquaintances in media and just kind of friends locally. People obviously miss going out. People especially really miss going to events, kind of the ability to get dolled up and go out and you know, you go to some place and there's a lot of different chefs there kind of presenting small bites and there's always wine. 
Um, I was fortunate enough, the first time I met you in person was at an event right before kind of COVID shut down, which was the Table for 10 event, table for 10 event uh, right. down in Dana Point, California. Um, as a chef, I don't really think people realize how much work goes into those, how much sacrifice can go into those. A lot of chefs, uh, depending on the event, are not paid for their time. They're there to promote their restaurant and hope that kind of the community follow through will kind of lend itself on the back end later on. Where do you see as kind of, we talked about digital tastings, but as somebody who obviously Justin has its fair share of events that they go to, and if there's a culinary aspect, you, or I think, I believe I met your pastry chef at that event also. What do you think for the future of kind of events from your standpoint and your view as a chef? You know, I know that Justin is currently not supporting, as a company is not supporting or encouraging any of us to participate in the events. So unless things change for COVID next year, at this point, we Justin won't be participating in Table for 10. I'm really hoping that things change and we are able to participate. Um, with large events like that, you know, I don't know, because as you said, it, it's a lot of work, but we do it because we believe in the cause and we believe that it'll have a benefit to our restaurants. So I hope that it will come back. Um, I, I, I I wish I knew. Are there any aspects of kind of, there's been so many discussions that were kind of prior to this and it's kind of been a, a drum I've been beating with most of my guests that are chefs. There were a lot of discussions before COVID broke out about balancing work-life balance, kind of dealing with mental health in the hospitality world and just kind of improving quality of life for so many different hospitality professionals, you know, all the way from kind of dishwasher to sous chef. There's been a lot of things that have changed since COVID and we don't really know what they all are yet. Um, is there anything that was a part of restaurant life before all this that you hope either doesn't come back or if it does come back, gets more attention as is talked about more now that there's kind of been a renewed focus on the hospitality world? I think if anything, for those chefs that have had the ability in the, to keep working through COVID, the mental health has only been exacerbated. And I say that because a lot of places haven't been able to operate at 100% occupancy or capacity. Mm -hmm. But in order to, you know, pay for your staff, you need to do a certain amount of capacity. And since we're not able to do that, you're, and you end up taking the people that you can't afford and you stretch them and work them beyond what you were already working them. And you're just kind of hoping that there will be some sort of end to this so that you can afford to hire more people. Um, so unfortunately I feel like it's been exacerbated. And for those people that have been laid off or aren't working or there's a fear of what if it comes back and what if I get furloughed again, or what if I get laid off, you know, I feel like the anxiety that any person in the hospitality industry has had this whole year, it's just, it's just been exacerbated. As somebody who's facing that uh, firsthand, what do you do to decompress? You know, what kind of makes you smile when you're in the kitchen? What are the things that are kind of bringing you happiness so you're able to kind of cut through all of that stress that you've been dealing with these past couple months? 
I mean, we joke in the restaurant. We have one girl that is extremely positive and always cracking jokes and bubbly and laughing. And so is somebody else. And I always tease her that I brought her back for her positivity. But the reality is, is that you need to keep that going. You can't dwell on the negative. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter likes to paint and I found that I've started to paint more often as well, just because some days you come back and your head is just exploding and you need to find ways to sort of decompress and relax. And yeah, a lot of us will have cocktails. I'll have a glass of wine, just of course, but that's not <laughs> always enough. You need to do something else. So, I mean, I took up painting cause I can do it late at night. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, Justin, when you said the glass of wine, if I heard glass of wine, I was going to be like, it's Justin, right? Because you definitely want to, <laughs> you want to get that one in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so many more people have been cooking at home, obviously, because they had no choice. Um, and a lot of people have been diving into cooking different things. You're somebody who is known for your respective seasonality and being able to kind of elevate those ingredients that are kind of there at the moment. Um, and you've kind of most of your resume has always kind of been that way, especially places kind of like, you know, again, the French Laundry, your time at Bayside. Like there's been so many places, sorry, Balboa, not Bayside. Um, what would you say to people that may be listening that are, you know, just your everyday kind of cooks at home with regards to seasonality and cooking in that now that we're kind of officially shifting into the season? I don't know what the weather's been like in Paso, but it, we are just finally having our first week of not being 80 degrees here in Orange County. So it actually feels like the seasons are shifting finally. But as somebody who's so well-versed with kind of seasonal cooking, what would be your advice to kind of the average cook at home on it? I don't know. I think that people are fearful when they see something that they don't know. And they just, if you, and it's a natural thing. All humans do it. If you are unfamiliar, you sort of walk the other direction. You don't want to deal with it. But I think what's fun is, joining the CSA and getting a basket because you're A, supporting your local farmer, but B, they're going to put stuff in there that you might not necessarily be familiar with. And a lot of us will tell you, hey, here's some ideas of what you could do with a fennel or eggplant, right, for variation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't have to be hard and it doesn't have to be complex. Are there there any chefs that have been inspirations to you that other people can look at as well for kind of continued inspiration, you know, even if they're just reading the menu at their respective restaurant, which is something that I do from time to time, who are some other chefs or culinary figures that kind of were either mentors or, or just people you're just a fan of their cooking? Well, I think that Alice Waters has written some really approachable cookbooks for the home cook that are, that deal with seasonality. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people have access to her cookbooks and they're very, very home friendly. Um, but whenever I'm writing recipes for the home cook, one of my biggest things is that you don't have to follow it exactly, nor should you. You should yeah. merely use it as a guideline and and just take the basic cooking technique and throw whatever ingredients you have access into it or whatever ingredients that you like. and instead of going shopping and buying, you know, 20 foreign ingredients, oftentimes in a recipe, I will write or substitute with XYZ so that people can know that there's an opportunity for substitution. And I think that that's, baking, of course, is the exception. But when you're cooking savory food, 
oftentimes you have the ability to kind of do as you wish. Do you have a uh, a guilty pleasure ingredient or kind of a, a favorite ingredient that you just absolutely adore cooking with? A favorite ingredient? I don't know if I have a favorite ingredient, but I use a lot of flour to sell and I use a lot of butter at home. So. Those are both really, really good things. <laughs> and we can never have enough of those at home. No, no. In these days, it's completely fine to overindulge, especially when it comes to flour to sell and butter. So... I have zero, zero issue with either one of those things. Chef, I know the future is a little uncertain with everything going on. Um, What do you think the future kind of looks like for the next couple months? You know, as it relates to not just the winery, but your food, kind of yourself and and just kind of everything going forward with your profession. Um, I try to stay positive, at least paint the picture positive and have a backup plan. So, um, I do believe that people are still happy to be going out and leaving home and experiencing lunch, dinner outside of their homes that they're not cooking. So I'd like to believe that we will continue to see this uptick in people dining out. Um, The only thing I'm a little fearful of is, you know, weather permitting. So... While we might need rain in California, there's a part of me that's hopeful that we don't get a lot of rain because if we do, where will the guests sit if they can't all dine inside? Yeah, that's completely true. Um, so that's kind of the biggest thing I guess I'm concerned about. Um, so just well, staying positive. It sounds like things are at least kind of on the up and up um, a little bit. I do agree with you on the weather. Of course, the irony of having a high fire season is that we do need the rain, but we also want guests to be able to sit and support restaurants, whether they're here where I'm recording in Orange County or obviously up in Paso Robles or anywhere, because God knows every kind of aspect of the hospitality industry needs it. Uh, Chef, I don't want to take up too, too much of your time. Obviously, any time off these days is time that should be done relaxing and kind of unwinding. Um, any final thoughts or kind of things you'd like to vent about or anything like that? No, I'm not going to vent about anything. But I mean, I just feel I think that I probably put a positive spin on all this. And I think that's because we're very, very lucky here in Paso and at Justin to still be operating. We still have guests and customers supporting us, which, you know, I appreciate because this is keeping myself and my staff employed. Um, and, you know, we're just really grateful to have that support from everybody that's coming to dine with us. So thanks. I'm glad that you are still employed. I'm glad it sounds like you are healthy, your family is healthy, and things are going well up in Paso. Chef, if people want to follow you on social media, reach out, any other kind of questions, things like that, where can they do that? Yeah, so my name, Rachel Hagstrom on Instagram. They can follow me there and they can send me messages. Um, We also have in our kitchen, we have an Instagram called Just Chef. And we'll post, you know, little shenanigans that are happening in the kitchen or other things food specials, things of that nature. Um, so either one of those are avenues for communication. And, you know, we were talking about COVID and food and we put this focaccia on the menu that 
came from something I was doing with all my leftover bread during COVID. That was my neighborhood special for happy hour for a while. So um, it'll probably change soon into something a little more seasonal because right now it has dried tomatoes, but um, people should come try it. Absolutely. So wherever you are listening, whether it is New York, Florida, or right down the road, get out and go to Justin Winery and support. That is awesome. Chef, thank you so, so much for the time, um, the candor and kind of the honesty about everything going on. Hopefully it was not too negative of a, uh, of a sit down, but I'm unbelievably grateful for the time and for you to kind of be able to tell your story and everything that's been going on up at Justin. Well, thanks for having me. Hopefully we'll chat again soon. Absolutely. I appreciate the time and I will chat with you soon. Take care, chef. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to chef for taking the time calling in and uh, kind of laying it all out. Obviously, wherever you are, do whatever you can to support your local restaurants. Um, We've been saying that. I've been saying that. The world's been saying that kind of since day one when this all broke out. But really, every single day they need support. But especially moving into the fall, if you live in a place that actually has a winter, we've been fortunate so far that our winter in Southern California has consisted of things lighting on fire, which is pretty standard for 2020, I guess. But if you're living in a place where you can support in any way, please do. Your restaurants need it now more than ever. Buy some booze, buy some bites, do whatever you can to make sure that these people stay employed, especially during these tough times. Stay safe out there. Thank you so much to Chef again. I will see everybody very soon. Keep an eye out. There is a special Halloween-themed episode that's going to be dropping pretty soon. And then after that, we got even more episodes lined up for the Best Seats podcast. I'll see you soon. The Best Seats Podcast is an original production of The Best Seats. It is written, edited, produced, and owned by myself, Crawford McCarthy, founder and owner of The Best Seats. It is recorded in Aliso Viejo, California. It is subsidized through generous donations through patreon.com slash thebestseats. The following are names that have subscribed at the highest tier, aka norm status, and thus allow me to produce the show each and every episode. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Here are the supporters. Alexander Cook, Katie Cassie, Eric Lutz, Serena Warino, Cheryl McCarthy. Thank you for your support. 